Jesus is easily the most controversial person ever to have lived. He's also the most well-known of all historical figures. After a dramatic entrance into the human race, Jesus lived in relative obscurity for 30 years until he appeared on the stage of a monotheistic religious nation. Israel, a people group dominated and occupied by a nation of pagan religious beliefs who also allowed for the existence of many gods, the Roman Empire. Near the end of his third year of public ministry, Jesus began his final journey to Jerusalem. It was a journey that would end in his violent death at the hands of the Romans. Jesus had just recently raised a man named Lazarus from the dead, an event that was witnessed and documented by many people. And while many people believed in him and chose to follow him at this point, the religious leaders of that day were afraid if news of this resurrection spread, it might cause an uprising among the people. The timing of this event was, could not have been worse for the Jewish religious leaders since people from all over the world were in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover. At this point, Jesus had caused them enough problems. And at this time, Jesus made a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and as he came down the hill on the Mount of Olives into the city, people were waving palm branches, placing their garments on the road in honor of him, shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. All four Gospels have this triumphal entry. It's what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. Jesus entering Jerusalem. But who was this Jesus really? And why was he entering Jerusalem to certain rejection and death? The answer to this and other questions I want to look at as we look at a passage in Luke that answers some of those questions. We're going to look at the person and the mission of this man, Jesus, whom we are studying. What does it mean to believe in him and follow him? Today we're going to look at follow, follow, as we look at Luke 9, 18 to 27. Luke 9, 18 to 27. It's on page 841 in the Bible, and the rack in front of you also be on projection. Verse 18 of Luke 9. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, what do the, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes into his glory and in the glory of his Father, of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Who? That's the question. Who is this Jesus? And why is he going to Jerusalem to face certain death? That's, that's a question we ask. Let's re- begin by asking the question, finding an answer for who Jesus is. Roman number one, who Jesus is. Jesus begins this conversation with his followers by establishing his identity. His identity. He asks the question, who do the crowds, who do the people say I am? If we ask that question today, who is Jesus, we'd hear a lot of different responses. Oh, he was, a, he was a great leader. He was the founder of Christianity. He was a great teacher. One of many potential gods. Some would say he was an imposter. Or he was a nice guy who loved everyone. The answers these guys gave seem kind of strange to us. They say, who do the crowds say that I am? And the answers are John the Baptist, who they knew was, had been killed. John the Baptist, Elijah, or a prophet who came back to life. They had ideas. Everybody had an idea who this Jesus was. But when asked who they thought he was, Peter answered for all of them. Peter answered for all of them. He said, the Christ of God. Or the Messiah. The Messiah. But Jesus did not fulfill their expectation of the Christ or the Messiah. Scholar N.T. Wright wrote in a book called The Challenge of Jesus, few, if any, first century Jews imagined for a moment that the Messiah would be in any way divine. They didn't think he was going to be divine. In other words, people did not expect the Messiah to do supernatural things or miracles. They expected two things from the Messiah. There were two things they were expecting the Messiah to do. First one, he would build or restore the temple, which was the center of the worship and life of the Jewish people. Second, he would fight the decisive battle against the enemy, which in this case was the Romans. So they expected the Messiah to set up the temple and get rid of the Romans. Now, if you spoke to an Orthodox Jew today, you would find a similar expectation today. The Messiah will rebuild and restore the temple in Jerusalem, and he will fight and deliver Israel from her enemies. Those are the two things the Messiah was supposed to do. There were several Messianic-type people in Israel's history, according to N.T. Wright. He talks about King David, whose first act when he was anointed was to defeat Goliath and the Philistines. And then his last act before he left was to plan the temple. He didn't build a temple. He planned the temple. Then you go throughout the history. All these people, one of the most recent two were Judas Maccabees, who defeated the Syrians, and he cleansed the temple. And then there was Herod, 
who defeated the Parthians and rebuilt the temple. But none of these deliverers, these messiahs, seemed to last very long. They didn't last very long. They were, they were supposed to set up this kingdom forever. No one to date had fulfilled the Jewish expectation or their definition of the Messiah. Then comes Jesus. Okay? Now Jesus comes. Jesus did not rebuild the temple. Not only did he not defeat the Romans, he died at the hands of the Romans like many others of the failed revolutionary leaders in their past. So what, what's, what's the point? What was the point? Jesus claimed to be the Christ, the Messiah. He took authority over the temple and cast money changers out. When he was on trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, he's asked directly if he was the Messiah from God. His answer, Jesus' answer, he quoted from two passages, Psalm 110 and Daniel 7. He says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And what did Caiaphas do? He tore his robes, claiming that Jesus blasphemed because he claimed to be God. Then they sentenced Jesus to death for claiming, for blasphemy and claiming to be God. Now it's critical for us to understand that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He said, I am the Messiah. He claimed to be the Christ. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be God, period. Jesus did not claim to be one of the many ways to God. He claimed he was the only way to God. Only way. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus claims to be the Messiah, tells his disciples it is true. Then he contradicts everything the Jews thought the Messiah would be. See, we, we don't understand their confusion. They thought it was going to be like this. And he contradicted everything. Everything. He explained what it's like to be Messiah and gives a prediction in verse 22. He said, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and on the third day raised to life. Seriously? What is that about? What in the world does that have to do with being the Messiah? He said, this is what the Messiah means. It means suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. Now, wait a minute. Didn't, didn't the Old Testament prophets foretell that the Messiah was going to restore and rebuild the temple and defeat Israel's enemy for good? Here, here's the mystery. Here's the mystery. Stay with me, okay? God's way through Jesus is a way so different that his immediate followers had no comprehension. They could not comprehend what he was saying. Suffering, rejection, and death. How can this win anything? How can anything possible be accomplished through those acts? 
After his triumphal entry, when Jesus is elevated as hero, Savior, Messiah, five short days later, the crowds turned on him and killed him. What was his plan? Jesus came to die and be resurrected to restore the temple, the dwelling place of God. Then he took up residence dwelling in the hearts and lives of men and women who were redeemed and filled with the Holy Spirit. His kingdom was totally different. By his death and resurrection, he defeated his ultimate enemy, our ultimate enemy, Satan, and sin and the power of death. Then he set up his government. His government is called the kingdom of God that transcended every earthly kingdom and has lasted on earth for over 2,000 years and actually will last forever. This was so counter to the thinking of the disciples and all the Jews' thinking. That's what he came to. His kingdom, the temple, is you. He couldn't come in and dwell until he was put to death and resurrected, ascended to heaven and sent his Holy Spirit to live in the temple of God, which is you. You are the temple of God. It says in 1 Corinthians, you is a, is a plural you, which is y'all, and it's also, don't you know that you, singular, are the temple of God. That's what Jesus came to do. They had no concept. We're looking at it afterwards, thinking about that, that we are the temple he restored. All but one of the 12 followers of Jesus, the closest followers, disciples, died martyrs' deaths, staking their claim on the fact that Jesus was the Messiah and he had been resurrected from the dead. He, Christ, was the Messiah. We can look at all kinds of proofs, but he predicted his suffering, his rejection, and his death, and his resurrection. It's very challenging to predict your death, but especially difficult to predict your resurrection, just want to say. And remember what the religious leaders said after Jesus' death? He was in the tomb. They went to Pilate and they said, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, the deceiver said, After three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. They remembered. He had predicted. Not only did he predict his suffering and rejection, he predicted his death and his resurrection. That is Jesus, our Messiah. Nobody could have predicted. We don't have time this morning, but suffice it to say, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. His followers believed he was the Messiah. They died the death of martyrs, claiming that he was the Messiah and he was alive. Who is Jesus? Our Messiah. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? Okay, we've established this is who Jesus is. There's so much more 
and, and we've learned so much more about who Jesus is. But in Jesus' own words, what does it mean to follow Jesus? We're following Jesus. Verse 23 says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. We don't like to hear that. These are actually kind of hard words. Not kind of, they're really hard words. Jesus calls us to take three actions to follow him. Are we following him? question is, first of all, deny self. Deny self. We live in a day and age where people do not like the denial of anything except perhaps guilt. Maybe denial of reality or responsibility. We don't want to deny anything. And whether it's a commercial for the latest personal tech gadget, the best luxury car, the newest pharmaceutical answer, to diabetes, high cholesterol, or acid reflux, sure it's expensive, but you're worth it. You can have it all. We hear it all the time. We're not in the culture to deny. We're here to gratify. All the message around us call us to not to deny. There's a contrast between what we know as the 21st century Americans and what Jesus called on us to do, to follow Jesus. We want to gratify, not deny. Number one, gratify or deny. What are we supposed to do? We're a culture obsessed with fulfillment. People enter marriage to fill their needs, realizing soon that no relationship can work when one or both people in a relationship are taking and not giving. The key to a successful marriage relationship is deny, not gratify. Selflessness, not selfishness. And that attitude epitomized the life of Jesus. Deny, not gratify. There was the, there's the contrast between immediate or delay. Immediate or delay. We want everything right now. Right now. We get frustrated if it takes longer than two seconds to connect to a website. Do you guys remember when we had dial-up modems? It's like forever. It took like 10 seconds. It was awful to have to wait. We want immediacy. We, we get frustrated if we receive an email confirmation of an order on Amazon and it takes more than five seconds. It takes too long to download, download a file from the Internet. Remember, it's going to outer space and back. Just, just say it, okay? We don't want fast food. We want good food fast. We bank online and we transfer funds, pay bills, check our balance all instantly. And we never move to change the channel on our television because we have the remote control. And the remote is always where it should be, in my hand. <laughs> One of the biggest conflicts we had growing up is who's in control of the television, Brittany or me? That was always, that was always a, a thing. Now it's pretty much her. <laughs> we do streaming, we do some other stuff. It's more complicated, we got all these things, so the gadgets, there you go, you do it. Too complicated. Immediate or delay. To follow after Jesus means to delay. A delay in the fulfilling of my desires because his desires come first. Putting off fulfilling my desire in order to serve someone else. The nice self. And then there's temporary versus eternal. Temporary versus 
eternal. Many are obsessed with this physical existence with little or no thought given to the next life. Many of you probably remember at the, when Botox came out. Everybody remember Botox? You know what that is? Botox. In 2002, way back in the day, a new method to delay the look of aging became widely available. It was called Botox, which was a commercial name for botulinum toxin A, a purified form of poison that causes botulism. They figured out how to inject this drug into the patient's facial muscles, and you can paralyze the muscles that cause wrinkles, and this eradicates existing wrinkles and prevents future wrinkling for a while, just for a while, just, you know. Additional injections were required periodically, or else, as one doctor stated, a woman could go from having a flawlessly even face to looking like a Sharpay in four months. <laughs> That's a type of dog, if you're not familiar. Constant Botox treatments led to a whole social circle, circles where it was rare to find a woman over 35 with the ability to look angry. Botox was so popular in Hollywood that many film directors were complaining about actors whose faces couldn't move properly. That, now that's an extreme obsession with temporary versus eternal. Now, of course, Botox injections are used for other things as well. For some, it's an obsession with money. Maybe money. The story is told of the man who was a miser. He attended church faithfully, but he ref just refused to give in the offering. Once in a moment of weakness, he put $3.50 in the offering. That was it, $3.50. Now, the man eventually died and went to heaven. Since going to heaven is not dependent on how much money we give, he made it in. And Peter was given the job of showing him his place of residence. They walked past all the mansions and the estates, the English tutors and the Cape Cods, the neighborhoods with designer homes. And further and further they went, they passed some very tiny houses. And finally, they reached the outer limits and found a lean-to built with two pieces of plywood. Peter looked at his iPad and said to the man, this is it. The man was incensed and he began to raise a ruckus. He was complaining loudly when Jesus showed up. What's the problem, Jesus asked. Peter said, well, you know, he only sent up $3.50. You don't get a lot for $3.50 these days. <laughs> so Jesus said, well, give him this $3.50 back and tell him where to go. <laughs> sorry, sorry. That's not true to my knowledge. <laughs> Temporary versus eternal. What are we, what are we looking for? So what does it mean to come after Jesus? Deny self. Secondly, it says take up our cross daily. Daily. What does that mean? Now, we tend to think of our cross as an undesirable circumstance beyond our control. A woman marries a difficult man, and he is her cross to bear. I have an illness, and that's my cross to bear. The cross is not your mother-in-law. It's not your boss. It's not your teenager. The cross is not to be confused with common human circumstances. We all go through difficult circumstances. Life, life is just hard. 
John Wayne famously said, life is hard. It's a lot harder when you're stupid. <laughs> I'm trying to put some humor in this hard message. So, <laughs> Life is just hard. We, that's not our cross to bear. The, our cross is a part of life that's chosen, that's chosen. For Jesus, his cross was a literal physical cross. He died on that cross to pay for our sins. Our cross is chosen by us. It's something we choose because we are a follower of Jesus Christ. It involves a denial of self, sacrifice, and selflessness. We choose a hard place, a difficult relationship, a thankless job, a sacrifice, involved with help, helping a neighbor, a people, family member, whatever it is. To follow Jesus is to do what Jesus did, to deny self and take up our cross, whatever that is. It's our initiative, taking our cross. Four facts about taking up our cross, very quickly. First of all, it's a one-way trip. There's no turning back. When a man took up his cross and went with the Roman soldiers, he was not coming back. It's a one-way trip. Taking up our cross is a one-way trip. There's no turning back. It's certain death. And in our case, it's dying to self. It's dying to selfishness. This moves beyond the denial of self to death to self. My desires are not what's important. Galatians 2.20, Paul put it this way. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Dying to self, dying to self, takes a lifetime. Takes a lifetime. Dying to self, putting our own interests and wishes to death and surrendering it to Jesus. Existing for his wishes and desires. My desires then are no longer mine, but Jesus' desires. Then we have total submission, number three, to Jesus, to his leadership, his commands, his values, his priorities, and his person. That relationship now becomes more important than any other relationship. It's not I have to, but I get to. So it's a one-way trip, it's certain death, total submission, and it's ongoing. It's ongoing. It says, take up your cross daily, daily. Continuously. There's something about human nature that tends to forget things. That's why we need to take up our cross every day. Make an intentional decision daily to follow Jesus. Deny self, take up the cross daily. And let her see, imitate Jesus. Follow to come behind, to do what Jesus did. Now, this isn't to do what Jesus did in a wooden sense. People say, would, would Jesus play baseball or soccer? What would Jesus eat for breakfast? Would he wear green or white today? This has to do with the character of God, not getting hum, hung up on the details. Imitate Jesus. We shouldn't have to wear WWJD bracelets or pins. 
Isaiah said that the Holy Spirit would write the law on our hearts. The Holy Spirit brings an internal change. We become like Jesus. It becomes who we are. It becomes part of our character. I've given this illustration before. Psychologist Abraham Maslow proposes four different levels of learning. Four levels of learning. First one is unconscious incompetence. Okay? Unconscious incompetence means I'm ignorant and I don't know it. Okay? There's conscious incompetence. I know I don't know. There's conscious competence, which I've learned how, but I'm consciously aware as I do it. And then there's a fourth, which is unconscious competence, which is you're so competent you don't have to think about it anymore. Let me, let me give an illustration. How many of you remember learning how to drive a stick shift? How many of you can still drive a stick shift? Okay, just checking. I remember that. If you, had, if you learned on an automatic, you won't understand this, but that, that's okay. When you learn to drive a stick shift, you got to think about court. You got to think about it. You can't just get in the car and take off. You have to think, okay, I'm going to rev up the engine. I have to push in the clutch, put it in gear, rev up the engine, and let the clutch out and go. And then I have to do it again and again. If you have a five speed, you have to do it five times. Okay? It's complicated. It really, when you start doing that, if you remember, you couldn't find it, you grinded it, you know, that's all that stuff. So when you first start that, that's, you probably started out at conscious incompetence probably realized, I, I can't do this, but I know I can't do this, okay? Eventually, it got to be competent, and eventually, you just went through the gears without thinking at all. You just went through it. It was, we're talking then, unconscious competence. It just happened. There are things you did automatically because you learned how. One of the things I realized in, in the Christian life is that, and I, I used to get up when I was thinking, we've got to imitate Jesus, okay? So I'd get up in the morning and I'd, I'd make a list of all the things I had to do to imitate Jesus. And I had this list and you have this list and, and it's like you go through that. And finally, I said one day, I said, you know, this is ridiculous. I said, why don't you just live your life through me? Well, that's what Isaiah said. He says, I will write his law on your heart and you, it'll become part of your nature. It reaches the unconscious competence. It becomes who we are. And we don't have to sit there and think about it. We have to stop at everything. And we're at the red light. Would Jesus run this red light or not? I'm in a hurry. No, you don't have to think about stuff. You just do what Jesus would do because it's part of your nature. Amen. You don't have to sit there. This is part of, of growing in Christ and asking Jesus every day, God, live your life through me by your Holy Spirit. Imitate Jesus. Over time, the character of Jesus becomes your character. You naturally or supernaturally imitate Jesus. Philippians 2 says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. What was Jesus like? Imitate Jesus. 
So what does it cost? What does it cost to follow Jesus? What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit himself? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. What does it cost? Not much, just everything. Everything. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? There are, co- there are costs involved. There are costs, but there are also incredible rewards. Rewards. Also in Philippians 3, Paul writes in the same book to the same people. Verse 7 But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us a picture, a very clear picture, of who Jesus was what he came to do. And we are recipients of that legacy. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would see our connection to history, see our connection to this question that Jesus said, who do the crowd say I am? And what did I come to do? And Father, I just pray that you would move in all of us, that we would become more and more like Jesus not in a mechanistic fashion of of rules and regulations and lists and things, but in spirit. You set up the temple of God, and it's us. And I pray that you'll give us a brand new awareness of being that temple of the living God. And as we follow you and imitate you, that people would be challenged and loved and transformed because you are in us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Let's stand, shall we?